This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, we'll get started on session number two. <clears throat> Above and beyond humility at the foot of the cross. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you again for the opportunity to share here today. Father, I just again want to pray and ask that you would speak through me. Father, you know that the <clears throat> enemy is attacking my voice and he doesn't want us to humble ourselves at the cross. He wants to keep us holding on to those things that separate us from you. And so I just pray that you would prick our hearts today. And Father, that we would not leave the same way that we came into this room today. Father, we need a deeper revelation of who you are, of what you long to do for us, and of what you are calling us to. So Heavenly Father, please speak through me today, I pray. Please cover me with your righteousness. May you be glorified in all that's shared in your precious name. Amen. Amen. I just want to begin by sharing a little bit more of my testimony that I alluded to in the first session that we just finished. <clears throat> As I said, I grew up in the church, uh, in the Christian home, uh, Seventh-day Adventist home and background. Uh, my family on my mom's side actually goes back for about five generations. Um, so I was very immersed in that. My father, I think three generations. But the point was that I was in a wilderness spiritually. Now, I did not realize it at the time. I thought life was pretty good. Uh, as I shared earlier, I had a really good experience um, in academy, I went to Oklahoma Academy, um, and that really helped uh, cement me more in, in being a solid Seventh-day Adventist. But even still, I didn't truly understand what God wanted to do uh, in my life. And I'm still growing, to be honest, because we keep thinking, oh, I've arrived and I've learned, and then you come to a new point in your life and you're like, oh, I thought I had arrived before, but God's taught me so much more, and he keeps teaching us more and more. But I um, got very exposed early to the mission field and, and mission trips and activities. And I wanted to work for God. I had a desire to work for God. So I started getting involved, traveling here, traveling there, um, going on all these different uh, mission trips around the world. And I had a lot of great experiences. But the reality was, especially during those early years, that... I became very busy doing many good things. In fact, many people told me, oh, you get to do so many exciting things. I wish I had the life that you did. I mean, I had lots of exciting adventures, traveling here, traveling there, seeking um, to be a blessing, but very little fruit as a result. Of course, it was always cool because I could come home and I could show my friends pictures of the amazing places that I had been the things that I had seen, the things that I had gotten to do. Um, and I did. I got to do many things. Um, 
Now I would say, back then, I would say that my first goal was to be a missionary. I would say that. And honestly, I thought that's what it was. But as God began opening up my heart to my need and how desperately I needed a closer walk with him, I think that this was more the way that things were. Um, I, I wanted to be a missionary, but I wanted to have adventures and I wanted to see places. And it was, it was a lot of that. There was a lot of pride and self. But it's interesting because I didn't recognize that initially. <clears throat> I began sensing that I was missing something. I remember seeing different people that were broken at the foot of the cross. Have you ever seen those people that have come into the church and they're just so excited? They're weeping and praising God, what he has done for them, for his forgiveness, for his grace, for his mercy. Uh, you know, all these different things, they're just so broken over what Christ has done for them. They're basically broken at the foot of the cross. And I would see, I would see these people and I would think, I know Christ has died for my sins. Intellectually, I knew that, but it did not pierce my heart. I didn't feel it. In fact, the best thing that I can say is I was numb in my heart to what Christ had done on the cross. I grew up knowing you know, the gospel. I grew up knowing intellectually, but it did not pierce my heart. And I'm kind of telling you my story in stages, because tomorrow I'm going to share a little bit more about the, the, the real struggle that brought me to this change in my life where I began daring to ask for more. But I came to a point where I just said, God, I do not understand the cross personally. I know intellectually in my heart that you've died for my sins, that your son has died for my sins, but it doesn't touch me. Can you please give me a glimpse of what your cross has done for me? Help it to touch me and pierce my heart personally. And that's what I started praying. And you know, it's really amazing. You be careful what you start praying because God, he wants to answer those prayers. And especially if you just say, Lord, help me. I don't know where to go, but help me. Teach me how to get in your word. Teach me how to pray. Teach me how to have a deeper walk with you. If you start praying those prayers, God is going to answer. Well, it's kind of interesting. I'm going to share a, a, just briefly how this came about. Um, I was planning another mission trip to another exciting place where I thought I was going to go. I thought I was going to go to the country of Peru. I had never been there. And while I was planning that trip, things kind of fell apart and they weren't working out. And I had a friend, I was living in Loma Linda at the time, and working there, uh, a friend that was uh, in the School of Dentistry at Loma Linda, and he said, hey, Melody, you know, we're going with a group to Bangladesh in a couple weeks, and we need more nurses. I'm, I'm a nurse, by the way. And he said, would you be willing to come and help us? I was like, Bangladesh? Where's Bangladesh? <laughs> so I'm going to give you a little, a little um, missionary um, thing here. Bangladesh is a little, little country over there um, next to India, crammed in there in between, um, surrounded by India. Just to show you a little bit of, of Bangladesh, <clears throat> the U.S. population, we have 300-some million people in the whole United States. Okay? That's in the whole United States. Now, in Bangladesh... They have 160 plus million people crammed into an area the size of the state of Iowa. So they have half the population of the United States crammed into like one little area. Massive, massive amounts of people. I did not know anything about Bangladesh basically before I got there, but what do you do 
when four million visitors come to town, this actually happened a couple years ago when I was over there working, um, they had a big Muslim festival in the city, and this is what the trains look like coming in and out of the city. They're riding on the rooftops of the trains, just coming and going. It was crazy. Bangladesh has beautiful, beautiful people, but very devastating poverty. And there are many places around the world that did, and I've been in many of those places, but um, this was really the first real hardcore wake-up call for me. Now, I had been praying that God would give me a glimpse of the cross. I had been praying that he would help me to catch a deeper vision of who he is and what he is to me. So I'm in Bangladesh and I'm seeing all this poverty and this suffering and people on the streets. Do you know that this is a custom? I don't know how prevalent it is, but parents will actually mangle their children so that they become better beggars. Can you imagine that? It's just horrendous. And I'm sure this is probably not the only place where it happens in the world, but you'll see children with these weird, crazy deformities that their parents created so that they will be better beggars. It um, is very, very sad. I remember being there with my friends um, from Loma Linda. And <clears throat> since we're Americans, of course, they want to take us to a nice restaurant where we can have safe food, where we won't get sick. And we went out, and this restaurant probably cost us about $10 a meal, which is nothing compared to what we pay normally. But he was talking to us. We had just passed children on the street. This little baby was playing on the street, naked. Nobody, apparently, paying attention. I'm sure there was somebody around, but just playing there. And different kids, hungry and begging. And the doctor there that was working there at the time told us, you know, <clears throat> we were asking about money and how far it will go, and basically found out that $10 would feed like 30 people or something on the streets. Um, or maybe it was more than that. Anyway, it's just like a big difference. And my friends and I were really convicted. You know, we don't need to go out for these, these expensive meals, even if they are only $10. Let's save the money and let's buy some food that we can give to the people. And so we started doing that, giving out food um, to the children and different things. But the problem was, is there's more. And there's more, more children, more need, more, you know, everywhere. I mean, just give a little and then the, the need is magnified and the need is magnified and it just kept growing. And it's just breaking my heart and I go back to my room at night and I'm just like, Lord, what do I do about all these people? You know, oh, my first real, real exposure. Um, anyway, so it was interesting because I had I started praying a few months previously, Lord, please give me a, a, a glimpse of what you've done for me on Calvary. And I was crying about these people on the streets there in Bangladesh. And I'm just like, Lord, how do I reach them? I mean, like, just looking at the city of Lone, Dhaka, the capital of the city, it's impossible. How could humanly we clean up this city? Not considering the whole country, of course. And my heart was breaking. And it was during that time, wrestling and prayer and just all these different things. I was reading my Bible one morning, having devotions. And God says, you know, you've been asking me for a glimpse. Do you really recognize what I've done for you on Calvary? Do you recognize the impossibilities of your own heart and life? You've been trying in your own strength to clean up your life, to do this and to do this and to do this. But you know what? It's humanly impossible. Just as impossible as it is to clean these streets and to bring healing to this country in your strength. It's just as impossible to clean up your heart. 
But that's what I did by sending my son to Calvary. That's what I did by sending my son to die on the cross for your sins. I did what is humanly impossible in your strength. It cannot be done. That's what I did. It's very hard for me to reshare the story and the profound impact that that made on my heart. I can retell, but it's still not the gravity of how this hit me, just like a ton of bricks hitting me. And I was like, the human impossibilities of my own heart, my own selfishness, my own pride. Now, I thought, I thought that I was there doing good things for the people, right? I thought that I was there um, serving their needs and helping them. And I was trying to do good things for them. But the problem was I had so much selfishness, so much pride in my own heart. You know, it's kind of interesting. As I was praying and thinking about all these things, God began to convict me and show me my own heart. He says, you know, you think you're a pretty good person, don't you? You've been a Seventh-day Adventist your whole life. You've gone to Christian schools, not just Christian schools, Seventh-day Adventist schools. You've done this, you've done that. You've been trained in all the things. You look around at the struggles other people are having and you think in your heart, not meaning to be self-righteous, but boy, I'm glad I don't have struggles like they do. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that in your heart? You look at the issues other people are having, you're like, at least I don't have struggles like they do, you know. Oh, man, this and that. We don't realize our own heart need and our depravity of where we are as, as Christian young people. We don't recognize how desperately we need him. We think we are good. I thought I was a good person. Like I said, doing good things. After all, in the midst of, of the, you know, the sightseeing and the different adventures we were having, I was meeting people's physical needs and all of that. But God began to open my eyes and he said, Melody, do you recognize how desperately you need Jesus? This is my body which was broken for you. Have you ever looked at the cross and realized his body was broken for you? And if you were the only person alive on this planet, he would have said it's worth it for you. My body was broken for you to cover your sins, to cover your pride, to cover your selfishness. My body was broken because of your self-sufficiency, because of your pride, because of your lust, because of your gluttony, because of the way you talk to your family that's not Christ-like, because of your selfishness, because of your lack of love for the lost, because of your secret sins no one knows about except for you. My body was broken for you. You know, when this began to sink home to my heart, I was just floored. When this realization came, I was having my morning devotions this one morning in Bangladesh, and I began weeping and crying, and I was like, Lord, forgive me. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. Thank you for sending your son to take away my sins. I never recognized my great need. I thought I was a good Seventh-day Adventist young person. I did not recognize how desperately I had need. This is a powerful quote from Inspiration. It says, however trifling this or that wrong act may seem in the eyes of men, no sin is small in the sight of God. Man's judgment is partial and perfect, but God estimates all things as they really are. 
The drunkard is despised and told that his sin will exclude him from heaven. Will pride, selfishness, and covetousness too often go unrebuked? But these are the sins that are especially offensive to God, for they are contrary to the benevolence of his character, to the unselfish love, which is the very atmosphere of the unfallen universe. These are the things that are most offensive to God. He who falls into some of the grosser sins may feel a sense of his shame and poverty and his need of the grace of Christ. But pride feels no need. And that is why pride is so deadly. We cannot remove pride from our hearts. We can't do it. Pride will not allow you to remove pride from your heart. <laughs> That's why we have to say, Lord, take my heart. <laughs> Forgive me. Take this from me. I love this quote from Ministry of Healing. It says, our only claim to his mercy is our great need. And that's why I've been sharing, like what I shared in the first session this morning, <clears throat> when we recognize our need, that is the beginning of where our life can take off to be that abundant life that he's called us to be. Because then, instead of our strength, it will be his strength working through us. It will be his spirit working through us. It won't be just us putting on an act. It will be him doing <coughs> what he alone can do. Did you know that there are only two places where God dwells? You know what the first place is? In the high and holy place? And in him that is a contrite and humble spirit, in the broken heart. He dwells in our hearts, but it's the broken heart. It's not the proud heart. These are the two places that he dwells, in the high and holy place and with him that is a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and the contrite ones. One of our greatest needs is humility. And we're not ever going to get to the point where we can say, well, I've arrived now. I'm humble. You see how humble I am? You can't say that, right? <laughs> because if you say that, that's actually showing you're not, right? That's pride. You're not going to feel like it at all. It's actually going to be at the foot of the cross. You are going to be thinking, I am so far. Lord, please be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the point where he meets you. Humility at the foot of the cross. By the way, I'm kind of going through these. I have a lot um, that I want to share in this, in this session this morning. And I have a lot of quotes that I'm going to be sharing on the screen. All of these quotes I'm actually going to turn into PDF files. And they will actually be uploaded on my website, which I didn't give earlier. There's bookmarks on the back of the table. DaringToAskForMore.com same title as the book, daringtoaskformore.com. There's a resource tab on the website, and if you go, um, yeah, you can go to the resource tab, or you can go to my seminars. Actually, the resource tab, will, we'll talk more about that, has the prayer cards. Um, but if you go to my seminars, you'll see the GYC seminar, and you can, you can actually download PDFs of all, the, all of the presentations I've given so you can see these quotes. Andrew Murray in the book Humility says, it's easy to think that we humble ourselves before God, but humility towards man will be the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. Can you do that? I'm not asking for a show of hands. He can bear to hear others praised and himself forgotten because in God's presence he's learned to say with Paul, I'm nothing. 
It's okay. He's received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and sought not his own honor as the spirit of his life. This is um, a little sheet that I often pass out at seminars, and I'm also going to put this on the website to download. <clears throat> the beauty of brokenness and humility. You know, we, we think, we tend to think a little bit more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. <laughs> and we need those wake-up things. And I like to hand this out. It's called The Beauty of Brokenness and Humility. Contrasting proud versus self-people. Um, self, self, sorry. Proud, self-filled people versus humble, selfless people. And let's just look at a few of them there. It's really tiny on the screen, so I apologize, but I'll read a few of them to you. So proud, self-filled people desire to be a success so others will see, whereas humble, selfless people desire to be faithful that God's glory may be seen. Proud, self-filled people see all the good they do and they feel worthy of salvation, while humble, selfless people know that only through Christ's blood can they gain salvation. Proud, self-filled people feel confident and proud of how much they know as Seventh-day Adventists. And humble, selfless people feel humbled by how much they have yet to learn. Proud, self-filled people thank God they aren't like the world around them. But humble, selfless people realize that pride itself is as deadly as the sins of the world. Proud, self-filled people are quick to cast blame on others for problems, while humble, selfless people are quick to accept personal responsibility for problems. Proud, self-filled people have a difficult time saying, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Humble, selfless people are quick to say, I'm sorry, let's work this out. Proud, self-filled people tend to focus on the failures and weaknesses of others, while humble, selfless people feel deeply that their own weaknesses, feel deeply their own weaknesses and great spiritual need. <clears throat> Proud, self-filled people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit, while humble, selfless people have a dependent spirit, recognizing their constant need of Christ's help. Proud, self-filled people have to keep personal control. Everything must be my, my way. After all, my way is the right way, right? Have you ever thought that? Humble, selfless people are willing to surrender control. They only want God's way. And sometimes God uses other people's imperfect way to get his way. Proud, self-filled people have to prove they're right and save face when they're wrong. Humble, selfless people are willing to yield the right to be right, even when they're right. Proud, self-filled people talk a lot about themselves, their life, their accomplishments, the great things that they've done. Humble, selfless people are more interested in asking questions and learning about others, where they've come from, what they've done. Proud, self-filled people are very self-focused, self-serving, only see things their way. Humble, selfless people are other-focused, willing to take a servant's role and see a different way. Proud, self-filled people are often unmoved, apathetic, and aloof to pain and suffering in others, whereas humble, selfless people have a broken heart for those in need, weep with Christ, long to do something more. Proud, self-filled people too busy to notice or care about the small people in their life will humble, selfless people seek to serve and minister to the small people, even the least of these. And this really shows our true Christianity, how we're willing to serve the person who can do nothing for us. You know, you can't do anything for me. Am I still going to be nice to you? Am I still going to be Christ-like to you? Proud, self-filled people desire to be recognized and appreciated and honored. Well, humble, selfless people are content to go and notice as long as God gets the glory. <coughs> Proud, selfless people desire to be served and feel entitled to special treatment and respect, whereas humble, selfless people are looking for ways they can bless and serve others above self. It goes on and on. 
proud self, selfful people focus on spiritual performance and achievements while neglecting the heart work, whereas humble, selfless people are always seeking to connect heart to heart and share Christ's love. Proud, selfful people defensive and criticize when um, offended, easily offended. Humble, selfless people receive criticism with a humble, open heart. Proud, self-filled people, when confessing sins to God and others, deal in generalities, whereas humble, selfless people, when confessing sin to God and others, deal with specifics, when that specifics involves them. Proud, self-filled people are concerned with being respectable and not a spectacle. Proud or humble, selfless people are more concerned with being right with God, regardless of what other people see. <clears throat> proud, selfless people are concerned with the outside profile, what others think. Humble, selfless people more concerned with purity of heart and what God thinks. Proud, selfless people compare themselves to others and feel deserving of salvation and honor, while humble, selfless people compare themselves to God's glory and realize their complete unworthiness. And last, proud, self-filled people don't think they need revival, but they think everyone else does. But humble, selfless people are always the first to acknowledge that they need a daily, continual revival. This is to show us our great need. This is a quote that my best friend gave me last night. I thought this was powerful and I had to put it in. Self is our biggest enemy. We cannot afford to let our spirits chafe over any real or supposed wrong done to ourselves. Self is the enemy that we most need to fear. No other victory we can gain will be so precious as the victory gained over self. And once again with pride, we can't gain the victory over self because self does not want to crucify self. Do you want to crucify yourself? No, we don't want to crucify self. That's only something that God can do. We should not allow our feelings to be easily wounded. We are to live not to guard our feelings or our reputations, but to save souls. That's why we are to live. I could tell you about uh, a man that I met, um, at, maybe it was two years ago, when I was traveling with uh, the Southeast Asia, um, Adventist Southeast Asia Ministries with their team in, in um, where were we? I think it was in Myanmar. We were in Myanmar, former, former Burma. And I met this man, I interviewed this man, and he shared how he's one of the Bible workers there. And the chief of another village had come along and ran into him with his motorcycle. And this man, the Bible worker, wasn't doing anything wrong. He was hit by the other man. But the chief, he was kind of drunk and known for having a bad temper. He accused the man of the fault for the accident, even though it wasn't his fault. Do you know that that Bible worker very meekly accepted that and paid him the charges for the repairs for his whatever? But he not only did that, he went to that village and to the chief and asked them if there was anything else that he could do for him or his family. And the chief put him to work doing some stuff in his field or something there close by. And the people in the village were like, what do you think you're doing for this man? Don't, I mean, don't try to make friends with him. He's, he's, not a, he's not a good man to anybody, so don't worry about him. He's just, he's always this way. You know, this is what the people were saying. But he just tried to serve and minister this man. I don't understand why he did this, because this would not have been what I would have done. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Anyway, so he goes and ministers this man. The people in the village were so impressed 
that they asked him to come and teach them the Bible. And there were no Bible studies going on in that village at the time. But because of his response to how he was treated and going the extra mile to minister to that man, a whole door was opened into that village for him to share Bible studies and share the Bible. And I don't know what the current update is, but God was working in the village as a result of that, that man's attitude. And I thought, wow, if that could be, if that could always be our response and our attitude. <clears throat> we should be like this house. Let me show you why. We cannot say we are righteous before God through faith in Christ and be unrighteous among men. <laughs> Let's put it this way. We can liken a man to a house. It has roof and walls. So also man in his fallen state has a roof on top of his sins coming between him and God, and he has walls up between him and his neighbor. But at salvation, when broken at the cross, not only does the roof come off through faith in Christ, but the walls fall down and man's true condition as a sinner saved by grace is confessed before all men. The secret to continued revival is continued brokenness. Fifth Testimonies, page 18, says, Let the proud spirit bow in humiliation. Let the hard heart be broken. No longer pet and pity self. Look upon him who our sins have pierced. See him descending step by step the path of humiliation to lift us up. Abasing himself till he could go no lower and all to save who are fallen by sin. Why will we be so indifferent, so cold, so formal, so proud, so self-sufficient? Who of us is faithfully following the pattern? Who of us has instituted and continued the warfare against pride of heart and self? <clears throat> you know, the Bible tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. What does it mean to be doers of the word? I believe it means that we measure our life against the standard of God's word. And if our lives don't measure up, what do we say? We say, Lord, change me. This is not how my life looks. You tell us in your word, this is what my life is supposed to look like, but this is not how my life looks like. What am I supposed to do? We say, Lord, change me. Now, there's another sermon. I mentioned David Ashrick earlier that really affected my life a few years ago. Do you remember the sermon? Lord, solve my problems, but save my pigs. It's about how Jesus and the disciples landed on that shore and the two demoniacs came out to, to meet them. You know, those people in that area obviously had a big problem, right? They couldn't go near that shore because of those wild men. They needed something done about them. So Jesus goes. He heals those men. And the demons that were in those men, they go into the pigs, right? But the people may have thought, you know, that's, that's nice that you did that, but we needed our pigs. <laughs> what are you doing sending those, you know, into the pigs? We need our pigs. And so... Um, it so often is true with us. And I want you to think about how this applies to our own life. Oh, my word. Okay, Melissa. <laughs> Sorry. The girl I was talking about this morning with the prayer ministry who's been working in an undisclosed location just happens to be in the back of the room. Praise God. Lord, I need you to solve my health problems, but don't ask me to give up my favorite foods or unhealthy lifestyle habits. Don't ask me to exercise or to follow your health laws. Lord, I need, to help, I need you to help me with my financial problems and help me get out of debt, but don't ask me to be a good steward, to stick to a budget or to deny myself. 
Lord, I need you to solve my relationship problems, but don't ask me to be the unselfish one to admit that I was wrong. Don't ask me to make the first move. Don't ask me to be the servant. <clears throat> Lord, solve our church problems, but don't ask me to humble myself to say I'm sorry for ways that I've wounded others. Don't ask me to stop talking behind others' back or to go against the doubt and skepticism that I hear voiced in others around me. Don't ask me to actually get involved. Lord, solve my spiritual problems, but don't ask me to get up early and sacrifice my sleep. Don't ask me to take time to really dig into your word and to wrestle in prayer. Don't ask me to confess and repent and make right those things I've done wrong. Solve my problems, Lord. Solve my problems. Lord, build my faith, but don't put me through the testing fires. Don't take away those things that I love or those things that I depend upon for my security. Don't take away my feelings of control or my backup plan for safety. I need faith, but Father, please don't take me through the fire. This is so often our, our prayer. Lord, solve my problems, but save those pigs. And our prayer should be, Lord, solve my problems and deliver me. Deliver me from the pigs. You know, we are called in the Bible to be repairers of the breach. That's what God has called us to be in Isaiah 58, 12. But you know, the problem is, is we cannot be repairers of the breach for the world around us because we have so many breaches in our own lives. This is our problem. You know, we're talking about the seminar, the whole seminar is above and beyond keys to spiritual revival and abundant living. And this is a huge part of it. It's removing the breaches. It's recognizing our need at the foot of the cross. Satan has an agenda to distract us, and he's doing it in a thousand, thousand ways. Anything that he can to keep us from deep time with God and deep time in the Word. Busyness, spiritual breaches, um, even through doing many good things, as long as they keep us from connecting with God. And I tell you what, the busier you get in ministry, the more he attacks you. It's okay. Keep doing the good things you're doing. Just make sure you don't have time for him, right? If we lose that connection, we lose the power because we can't do it in our own strength. I want to talk about some spiritual breaches really, really briefly. These are, of course, um, much more significantly covered in Daring to Ask. And I will share this with you because um, if you don't have this book, I think Friday night, I'm not sure, they're still working out the logistics, we're actually going to be giving away uh, a bunch of them. The, the Ministerial Association is after the meeting. And so anybody that wants one will be able to have one. Talk about these things in great detail. These are some of the spiritual breaches that affect our lives. Unconfessed sin, idols, addictions, ungodly mindsets, ungodly conversations, behaviors, ungodly relationships, worldly preoccupations. I want to just zero in really quickly on the ungodly mindsets. <clears throat> I read a book a little while back called The Respectable Sins, confronting the sins that we tolerate. And these are the sins that it talked about in this book. Anxiety, frustration, discontentment, judgmental spirit, unthankfulness, backbiting, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control, impatience, anger, resentment, envy, jealousy. How many of you struggle with these sins? No, you don't have to raise your hands. <laughs> We all struggle, don't we? And you know why we don't speak against these sins? We don't speak against these things because we all struggle with them. I struggle with them too. You know we're told in God's word not to be anxious for anything? Amen. You, told, you know we're told not to be offended? 
Um, Psalms 119, 165, great peace have they, which love thy law and nothing shall offend thee. If we are truly dead to self, when we are poked and prodded, we are not going to respond. And you know you're not dead when you respond because <laughs> dead people don't move, right? Dead people don't respond. God has a wealth of things in his word and promises that we are to be claiming for each one of these areas in our life and many more. But we're too lazy. I really feel like, and I was, I was, I was praying about this this morning when I was having my time with God because God was convicting me of this too. It's very easy to get spiritually flabby, spiritually lazy. You kind of know what you're supposed to do. Um, you've had success already, after all, and you get lazy, and we can't get lazy. The devil isn't taking a vacation. You know, we take a vacation and, and we tend to let our guard down, especially over the holidays. This is the time for me to relax enjoy a few things that I don't normally have, you know. We get a little lazy with our sleeping habits, with our eating habits and everything. The devil isn't on vacation. He says, oh, I'm getting some extra, some extra tentacles here, some extra ways to pull them down. And the things that we do, they affect our mind, our lifestyle habits, all these different things. And he's just waiting for those opportunities. We need to ask God to take the spiritual flab out of our lives and help us to be strong and fortified and spiritually fit for him. Now, you can look at these different things, and, and you may be discouraged, and it's okay, because remember what we've been talking about already, is Jesus came to save sinners. So you recognize, oh, I have so many more needs I didn't even realize I have. That's a good thing, because he came to save sinners. I want to talk about one more area. Probably most of you in this room would say, well, satanic strongholds is not an area that we struggle with. But listen to this story. Um, There's a missionary friend of mine in South America that was on a bus one time traveling along, and he discovered he was sitting next to a witch doctor. And they started talking, and the witch doctor started boasting about the things that he could do. And he told my friend David, he says, you know, um, if you wanted, I could cast a spell over your family, and I could cause your wife to leave you, and I could bring you the woman's of your dreams. You know, so you could really have your dreams come true, right? As if David wanted a different wife. But anyway, this is what the man said. And, he, and David says, no, I don't think so. I don't think you could do that. And, and the witch doctor says, oh, yes, I could. And they're kind of arguing a little bit. And the, and, the, and the witch doctor says, well, let me ask you a few questions. So he started asking. He says, do you listen to such and such? And he listed some of the popular music in that region of the world. And David says, no. He says, mm, do, you, do you watch such and such? Some of the popular television programs in that region of the world. And David says, no. <clears throat> he says, do you watch soap operas? For some reason, that was part of the conversation. David says, no. And he kept going down the list. He says, do you look at pornography? And David says, no. He kept going down this list of questions. And at the end, he said, you're right. I can't touch you. But the moment that you partake in any one of those things, I can exercise all the power in the world over you because you have given me a foothold into your life. How often do we, not even recognizing it, in the little worldly associations that we have, whatever it is, music, diet, who knows, I don't know. God knows, and he can prick your heart of that, and that's what he needs to do for our hearts today. How, through some of those things in our lives, are we allowing the enemy a foothold so that he 
has a breach, and we're wondering why we're not strong when we're going out to battle. <clears throat> this is encouraging news, though. We're told in Christ Object Lessons, page 157, 158, in the whole satanic force there is not power to overcome one soul who in simple trust cast himself on Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. amen. But we must have a knowledge of ourselves, a knowledge that will result in contrition before we can find pardon and peace. It is only he who knows himself to be a sinner that Christ can save. Do you recognize how desperately you need Jesus? We need to examine our hearts and ask him to search our hearts and show us what our needs are. You know, and that's what Satan doesn't want us to do. We're told there's nothing that he fears so much that the people of God shall clear the way by removing every hindrance <clears throat> so that the Lord can pour out his spirit upon us. God wants to give you deliverance from addictions, from ungodly thinking patterns, from anxiety, from spiritual discouragement and oppression or depression from relational tensions and pain, from distractions that keep us from God. Okay, I'll go back to that last screen for those of you that were trying to take pictures. He wants to give us deliverance. Amen. And he can give, give us deliverance. Amen. I shared a few testimonies this morning already in the first message about him setting people free. He wants to heal us and make us whole spiritually. Physically, mentally, emotionally. You know, we suffer under this discouragement and doubt and depression and fear and anxiety. Can you imagine God up in heaven looking down upon his people and having a panic attack <laughs> and thinking, oh, what are they doing? What am I going to do? You know, they got themselves into this fix or Melody did this. And Mel what am I going to do to solve this now? Is that God's attitude towards us? No, I mean, that's, that's preposterous, right? That's preposterous. We know that God has everything in control. Great peace have they which love thy law. Perfect peace. He gives us perfect peace um, whose mind is stayed on him. He does not give us the spirit of fear, but of love, sound mind. And again, once again, from the soul that fills his need, nothing is withheld. <coughs> He has unrestricted access to him in whom all fullness dwells. I love this part. <clears throat> if we are determined not to be separated from the source of our strength, Jesus will be just as determined to be at our right hand to help us. I love this. Just seek him. And you know what? It starts by just acknowledging we don't have it. And that's where it really started for me. In my brokenness, in my utter lostness at the time, I was just like, Lord, I don't have what it takes to be the Christian that you've called me to be, to be the Seventh-day Adventist you've called me to be. I'm already a young adult. I, I mean, I know I've heard this and I know that and whatever, but I don't have what I need. Please help me. Show me where to start. And that is when he began to work. You know, we've been talking about different lifestyle things. Does our obedience save us? Just to remind you, we're told, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? <clears throat> However, our obedience is the test of discipleship. 
So it's our obedience that gives evidence of what God is doing in our lives. It is the keeping of the commandments that prove the sincerity of our profession of love. When the doctrine we accept kills sin in the heart, purifies the soul from defilement, bears fruit unto holiness, we may know that it is the truth of God. Mount of Blessings, page 146. Matthew 6.33, I know that you're <clears throat> familiar with. <clears throat> Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I'm going to need to take a cough drop because my throat's getting a little dry. <clears> throat> I've, I've recited this verse for years. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But you know what? I only really paid attention to the first part of the verse. Seek you first the kingdom of God. That's what I'm doing, right? And his righteousness. His righteousness is desperately what we need to cover us. We're told in Isaiah 64, our righteousness is as filthy rags. You know, I lived a good life for a young adult in my 20s. I had this and this and this. I could tell you the right answers to this and this. But did that righteousness save me? Did that righteousness give me what I needed? No. It is only his righteousness that can save me. This is from Desire of Ages, page 300. The proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until, convinced of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency, he yields himself to the control of God. <laughs> Check out this one. What is righteousness by faith? From Testimonies to Ministers, page 456. <clears throat> it's the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which is not in his power to do for himself. That's what God does. He lays everything. We think, oh, I, I can do this, I can do that. And he says, I love you, my child. But that's nothing. Take my robe. Stop trying to cover yourself with your robe and your righteousness. Stop trying to cover yourself with your good works. If we love him, we're going to do good works. That's going to be the result. But those good works do not save us. And I feel like for the first half of my young adult life, that's what I was trying to be. I was that good person. I was doing this. I was doing that. But I was still having all these issues and whatever. I still have issues because I walk away from that abiding experience. But God has shown me it is his righteousness that is the secret. That is the key. Staying abiding in him. This comes, um, I don't know how many of you have seen this book. If you haven't, Lessons on Faith by A.T. Jones and Wagner. Very powerful. There is one important qualification for us to be able to receive Christ's gift. You're going to love this. That is that we must acknowledge that we are ungodly and we believe that Christ saves us. It is quite easy for many to believe that they are ungodly and even to acknowledge it. But for them to believe that God justifies them? That's too much. And the reason that many cannot believe that God justifies them is because they're so ungodly. <laughs> That's the problem. Listen, it goes on. When a person sees himself so ungodly as to find there no possible ground of hope for justification, it is just there that faith comes in. Indeed, it is only there that faith can possibly come in. 
for faith is dependence on the word of God. So long as there is any dependence on himself, so long as there is any conceivable ground of hope, for any dependence upon anything in or about himself, there can be no faith. Faith is dependent on the word of God. He has to cover us with his righteousness. And the fact that we are so ungodly is our greatest qualification for him to cover us because it's our great need, right? I'm going to close with John, um, John Bunyan's testimony. You've all heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress. Very, very, very long-lasting, popular book. John Bunyan um, was actually, his parents dedicated him to God as best that they knew how as the time, but he grew up kind of wild and um, vulgar language and actions and everything else. But then God began working on his heart and convicting him to, you know, that he didn't need to live this lifestyle. And so he started, you know, doing more good things. He stopped swearing and his companions began to notice that were changes in him. But he still struggled. He struggled with depression, with doubt, discouragement, and it was like he never really had victory. He was always struggling, even though he was trying to serve God. And the breakthrough actually came um, for John Bunyan when he was walking through the field one day, and he remembered that promise from John 6:37 that says, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. I love that promise. I claim that promise again and again. Lord, you said if I come to you, you won't cast me out. I'm sorry. I've made the same mistake again. Please help me. Forgive me. He says, I forgive you. Abide in me. Trust in me. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So that verse came to his mind, and he grasped a hold of this, and it was just like a revelation from heaven. You know, you've been trying to find your righteousness in yourself and in your works. You've been trying to live, and you keep falling and failing. Your righteousness is in heaven. That's where your righteousness is. At last he realized it was not his good works that made his righteousness better, nor his sins that made his righteousness worse. His righteousness and salvation rested alone in Christ. For the first time he realized that it was Christ's work at the cross and his being high priest in heaven that gave him John Bunyan salvation and as a result the power to live for God. As the truth burst upon his heart, the chains of discouragement fell off and the afflictions of his soul at last fell away. And that is true for us as well. Our righteousness is in heaven. It's not in anything that we do. We have to be covered by Christ's righteousness. I love this quote from Sons and Daughters of God, page 22. Christ has pledged himself to be our substitute and surety and he neglects no one. Not one of you in this room does he neglect. Not one of you. There is an inexhaustible fund of perfect obedience accruing from his obedience. In heaven, his merits, his self-denial and self-sacrifice are treasured up as incense to be offered up with the prayers of his people. His perfect righteousness is to cover our is to cover our imperfect life. As the sinner's sincere, humble prayers <clears throat> Ascend to the throne of God. Christ mingles with them the merits of his life of perfect obedience. <clears throat> Our prayers are made fragrant by this incense. Christ has pledged himself to intercede in our behalf, and the Father always hears his Son. So you say amen. Amen. The Father always hears his Son. So um, I have just a couple more quotes I'm going to share. 
as we're drawing this to a close. It is very exhausting in yourself to try to do all the good things that you're supposed to do. You know that? And if you try, you're going to keep falling and failing, and it's a struggle, and you're going to get discouraged, and you might even be tempted to give up. It's so discouraging. And I've been here, and I know, and I can speak for this. But our goal is not to try to do all these things. Our goal is to abide in Jesus, to ask him to cover us. And as he covers us, his life begins to flow through ours. His spirit is flowing through ours. This comes from a book, They Found the Secret, but I think it's just a beautiful illustration of what it means to abide. How does the branch bear fruit? Not by incessant effort for sunshine and air, not by vain struggles for vivifying influences which give beauty to the blossom and verdure to the leaf. It simply abides in the vine in silent and undisturbed union, and blossoms and fruit appear as of spontaneous growth. How then shall a Christian bear fruit? By effort and struggle to obtain that which is freely given? No, by learning to abide like a child in the arms of its mother. That is our greatest goal. And that has been what um, God has really been seeking to teach me more and more. Um, even recently, it's just like, Lord, help me to abide. And as I can stay ab abiding in him, things that would normally offend me or be frustrating or whatever, they won't because I'm in him and he covers that. We must abide. So above and beyond humility at the foot of the cross, <clears throat> our goal is to stay at the foot of the cross. Kneeling in faith at the cross, we have reached the highest place to which we can ever attain. This is it. <laughs> Kneeling at the foot of the cross. You want to know secrets to personal revival? This is really where it starts. Kneeling at the foot of the cross and staying at the foot of the cross. You know, it's easy to offer ourselves an offering to God, but the problem is, is we keep crawling back off the altar, right? That's why I think a living sacrifice, you know, he's called us to be living sacrifices. A living sacrifice has a choice <clears throat> to crawl back off. We need to continually make the choice, as we're told in the Bible, to die daily, to stay on that altar um, and not crawl off. This is where we need to stay. So this sums up <clears throat> what we've talked about in this session here. Humility at the foot of the cross. We recognize our desperate need. We humble ourselves before God's throne. We ask God to help us remove the breaches in our lives, the stinky pigs in our lives, those things that we're holding on to. And he will show us, you know, if we allow him, he will show us what those things are. We accept what he's done for us. We learn to abide in him. We remember our righteousness is in heaven. And this all goes together. This isn't necessarily in a certain order, but this is just how I shared it with you today. And last but not least, and I mentioned this earlier, we live up to the light that we have been given. We have to be responsible as Christians to do what we can with what he has given us. Like I said earlier, stir what you got. Whatever God has given you, use it for his glory. Those talents, those things that he's given you are not for your own selfish gain. They're not for you to use for yourself or the world. They're to use for God. Use what he's given you for his glory. If we want to be part of the latter rain, 
we are told that only those who are living up to the life they have will receive greater light. If we're living up to what God has given us, we're going to receive that outpouring when it comes. It's not going to miss us. But unless we are daily advancing in the exemplification of the active Christian virtues, we shall not recognize the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain. It might be falling on hearts all around us, but we will not discern or receive it. And I don't know about you, but that just like, Lord, I don't ever want to miss that. Please keep me in tune with your spirit that I will not miss that outpouring when it comes. So this is my prayer um, for us today as we close this session, that we will stay at the foot of the cross because that's where true humility is. We can't make ourselves humble, but as we kneel before his throne, as we see him, as we see ourselves as we are and we see him as who he is, he will change us from the inside out. One of my favorite songs I often sing in the morning is, Change My Heart, God. Change my heart, O oh Lord. Make it, make it totally yours. So that's what um, I want to share this morning. I'm going to have a, um, a closing prayer. This afternoon we'll go into uh, above and beyond, growing in above and beyond devotional life. So we'll give some more practical tools for that and um, go from there. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise you for what you've done for us on the cross. Father, forgive us for not recognizing the great sacrifice which we're told has caused you pain and causes you pain even still today as we continue to wound you afresh. Father, please forgive us for our pride and our self-sufficiency and our independence. Forgive us for wounding you afresh. Father, forgive us for, for shunning the Holy Spirit. We desperately need you and we haven't recognized our great need. But Father, we just give you our hearts again today. And just ask that you would change us. You see all the issues and the struggles that we have. You see all those breaches that the enemy is trying to use against us. But you say that you come to give us life and life more abundantly. You say you come to set the captives free. You, you say that you come to give us healing. And so, Father, we claim that today. Your word does not return unto your void. Thank you, Father, for what you're going to do. Thank you for what you've done. We love you in your precious name. Amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.